Welcome to episode 14 of The Brilliant, or should I say, episode 14, Second Attempt. Joseph Winogron, in his piece Slavery and Slack, writes, quote, Finding an absence of slavery today is like finding a jewel. We who would not be slaves, who would wear our day like a loose garment, we too are jewel-like, end quote. The brilliant podcast is about these moments and these people, bright and precious, delicate yet hard, moments that feel more free, moments in which relations come into beautiful constellations, People who are not afraid to name misery when they see it. People who push against the boundaries and take more than what they are told is appropriate. I am your host, Bellamy, joined by co-host Aragorn and sound engineer Roy Burton. On this podcast, we discuss anarchists, anarchist ideas, and anarchic moments through stories, analysis, and listener commentary. In doing so, we may find ourselves at turns full of humor or full of rancor, feeling futility or feeling ecstasy. Uh, I think it's really important that everyone knows that Aragorn really dislikes my intros, and in the background there he was just shaking his head, and then he spent several minutes trying to find this quote to tell me how wrong I was with what I just said, and all that fell apart, but I just, his need for editorializing there was so strong, I just felt like I had to step up and give him some support in doing it. Yeah, the, um, well, you you triggered me with this this phraseology um, about there being more freedom. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm misremembering the quote, but, but in Arm Joy, there's a, there's a section where Bonanno talks about the sort of the futility of pursuing quote unquote, more freedom. And, um, sounds interesting. yeah, it, it turns out the, the quote that I was looking for, wasn't as powerful as I was hoping because I, what I recalled was that he says so, sort of something along the lines of more freedom is impossible. Um, and, and that sort of those who pursue it, you know, are, are, are more or less uh, um, the, the the type who would perf- who would petition the state for you know more liberty or, or whatever. Longer leash. Basically, the concept is is there's freedom and there's not freedom. We live in not freedom. Okay. And as an insurrectionary anarchists, we pr- we want freedom. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's. Fine. I think actually that would probably be an interesting episode topic at some point. <clears throat> yeah. That way we can stay in the realm of heady abstractions and keep intellectually masturbating by talking about things that have nothing to do with people's lives. Yeah, that's going to be a big topic uh, this week, is, is we're going to talk about some of the, the very useful anonymous commentary that we've received on the internet, um, and we're also going to talk about some of the things that we've been up to lately. Uh, for those of you who notice such things, you will notice that it's been a few weeks since we have been um, uh, recorded. And that's partially because someone took a vacation, and... Um, Was it a vacation? <laughs> well, the, the fact that you're not rested afterwards is your fault. <laughs> worse than ever, actually. The worst shape I've been probably in like, the past couple months. <laughs> so. But, um, uh, so since we've been... Oh, and the other problem is is that uh, the recordings... We actually recorded two episodes to, to tie people over while uh, people were on vacation. 
And uh, I made the mistake of who knows what and uh, deleted both of those episodes. And so, uh, as you can imagine, I feel wonderful about that. Uh, we, we did a two-part thing about um, uh, biocentrism. Bioregionalism. Bioregionalism. Yeah. Uh, I, I got a, a PC uh, tongue lashing for for calling it the wrong thing. And um, <laughs> what, Was it PC? Biocentrism is a, a value system. I guess bioregionalism is too. Anyway, it was... I actually think it, it's unfortunate that it was lost because it was one... It was probably the episode where we disagreed the most and Aragorn was very much trying to take me to task for my beliefs and I think it might have been interesting to people because I think often we end up agreeing a lot or there's not so much clash. Um, we actually received an email to that effect. And so it's unfortunate that that happened. I think we will revisit that, but we didn't want to do it this week because it, we thought it wouldn't have that same kind of freshness. It would probably feel stale and like we were rehashing things. So maybe in a month or so we'll pick up that topic again. I mean, one of the things that we will continue to talk about is the fact that a lot of people confuse the Socratic method with uh, antagonism. <laughs> and so that's one of the well, issues that, uh, the, that Bellamy is sort of racking themselves with right now. A lot of people feel comfortable surrounding themselves with those who agree with them to infinitely validate their beliefs. Uh, enough with the snark. Um, we're going to do some listener feedback. Um, basically, the, uh, a listener emailed us and asked the question, how do we feel, quote-unquote, about cultural appropriation? And, yeah. Come on. You mind sharing? No, no, come on, don't fight. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something about sharing. What's mine is yours. What's yours? Is mine. The more you share, the more the sun will shine. What's mine is yours. Well, I, I do want to say they, they were specifically talking about how we had talked about a piece that was printed in a Joda by someone going by the name of Lupus Dragon Owl, and the piece was against identity politics, um, Spectre's joylessness in the contours of his Altamont. And they read this and basically said they read it because we talked about it and then wanted to follow up with us and say, having that analysis where you're opposed to what often gets called identity politics, even though I hate that term, how do you feel about cultural appropriation? And um, I think that this is a rich and complicated conversation that is going to be really hard to sort of wrap up in a... Um, I guess the biggest problem that I have with conversations around cultural appropriation is all the assumptions that sort of lie behind the, the statements, you know, you're bad because you are doing X, Y, or Z, rather than that I think the cultural appropriation is some, well, to put it, to put it maybe differently, uh, we culturally appropriate almost every waking moment of our day. Right. We we are all robbers, and the and and the question that we have to ask ourselves is that are we going to be poor robbers in the shadows who never sort of see the light of day, or are we going to be robber barons who steal generously, who give generously, and who uh, and who cites their sources? And so so for me, uh, th um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I so like how you use robber baron in a positive resonance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
Uh, well, it's like that classic thing that, you know, good artists uh, uh, steal yeah, and great artists, you know, steal everything or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. That's sort of what I'm going for. Um, so, uh, so a lot of the conversations around cultural appropriation sort of use that term, cultural appropriation, because that framing is a really different sort of framing than talking about, you know, the, the, the fact that everything that we do and, and that, that most of the culture that we produce is culture that's derived from other culture. And um, so uh, that said, we live in an era where, where framing is incredibly important. And when you do things that, you know, can be called cultural appropriation, you have to be extremely aware of the context in, in which you're doing that thievery. And I think that if you are aware of that context, you can be respectful and you can perhaps cite your sources, which I personally think is a, is a pretty important thing to do. And, um, uh, and you can move past, I mean, like I, I think that engaging in good faith with people who sort of wag their fingers and call whatever it is that you do, cultural appropriation is a bad use of your time. And so I tend not to do it. Um, yeah. So I guess that's, yeah, I guess I have two thoughts. One would be just to add on to what you were saying is that, um, of course, often the way that this term gets used in a finger-wagging way is to direct it at someone who, or at least in the American context, someone who is um, is is ethically, racially descended from Europe. And so the, the accusation is you're recapitulating colonialism with the way that you're culturally appropriating, which is funny because the implication, often unstated, is that what would be appropriate for you instead would be to act in accordance with your culture, mm-hmm. which is bizarre because then you're, you know, if you look at the history of most of the um, most European peoples, it's one of, of course, bloodshed, pillage, enslavement, and so it, it seems very strange to be prescribing to people that they ought to act in accordance with their culture. The other thing I want to say is that, um, of course, the observation that you're making that we culturally appropriate all the time is completely valid one, but I also think it, it is sort of a way of evading this person's specific question mm-hmm. because they were asking a more specific question, and of course they're talking about a, a particular kind of cultural appropriation, not the fact that you know, pretty much any time I make dinner, I'm culturally appropriating like crazy because I'm eating all these foods from different places and, and so forth. Well, I, I guess why I talk about framing exercises is because I'm, like, for me, when I figured out that a lot of the times the words that comes out of people's mouths are lies was a, was a really important moment in my life. Uh-huh. And, and sometimes they're lies, you know, sort of meant in the best possible way, and they're just trying to communicate an idea. And sometimes the lies are about getting you to subscribe to their worldview without talking you through the process. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about cultural appropriation and, and this idea that, you know, white people should do white things right. and brown people should do brown things... What we're really talking about is a is a an idea about how social change works. Yes. And partially the assumption would be that social change works by you identifying with some mass unit. Mm-hmm. And whether that be in this context we're talking about race, mm-hmm. red red, yellow, brown, white. Um, but otherwise well, I would say even more so maybe than identifying with mass that if we can change people's attitudes so that they're for the good things and against the bad things and we do that enough, then well, but we I have full communism. I think it's a lot more caveated than that. But but in in this case, when we were talking about let's say native stuff, the um, 
if we if we accept the premise, which I absolutely do not, that the world should be nicely divided into red, brown, yellow, and yeah. white, <laughs> and the red people do red things and the white people do white things. I took a huge step towards social justice when I started making my own sauerkraut. Yes. If if you think that white people is the same thing as Eastern European white people... <laughs> well, I'm just... <joking. laughs> uh, congratulations. <laughs> um, uh... So, so, t- so to me, that that is a is a is a really complicated nuance to to this question about cultural appropriation. And of course, we all experience that the people who tend to be yelling at other people about how much they're culturally appropriating, they're, they're never particularly precise about um, about what they're doing. What they're really doing is they're shouting loudly about the fact that like what what someone else is doing is giving them the creeps. Mm-hmm. Or what someone else is doing makes them uncomfortable, mm-hmm. or that they're co-opting someone else's struggle, quote unquote. And and for me, because I sort of don't accept the premise of any of that kind of discourse, this stuff really falls flat. But it doesn't fall flat for everyone. As a matter of fact, it feels like it's quite these are quite popular assumptions to make. And and the example that the person asked about was uh, that classic T-shirt of of natives holding guns in the in the in the war period. Um, and um, something about homeland security we've been doing it for 500 years or They're fighting terrorism since 1492 yeah, yeah. and um, and you know there's there are just so many layers of why I think that's a ridiculous shirt and, and I sort of have never been a big fan of that of that message even because it's it's accepting the terms of your of the fucking enemy as a way to frame an argument mm-hmm. and, and can you flush that out well when you say accepting the terms of it it begins by by saying that uh, white colonization of the Americas is similar to driving planes into tall buildings in New York City. Um, Which, you know, on the one hand, that's sort of inelegant, but but has a sort of existential satisfaction to it that, like, yes, they did something bad, and this is something bad, too. But But, you know, from my perspective, I feel like that... Uh, if, if you're going to make bad metaphors, the, the bad metaphor to make in this context looks much more like Nazi Germany than it looks like uh, 9-11. Sure. And so then that's not terrorism. That's war against a people. That's genocide. genocide that's, um, and, and, so the, and then additionally, it, it doubles down on the term homeland security, which, again, very much riffs uh, World War II and defending the fatherland mm-hmm. and, and sort of the worst aspects of, of uh, Nazi thinking or Nazi rhetoric. And, and so um, I don't – yeah, so I guess this is going to come up later on because we're going to talk a lot about the, this, this idea of, of what does doing something look like. And for a lot of people, doing something looks like wearing a controversial T-shirt that you then start a conversation with strangers about, and 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 as and through that conversation, expose them to new ideas. Um, that's sort of the, the most positive and gentle de- description of it. The other way to describe the same sort of stuff is that radical politics is a type of moralism, and it, and it uses a moral vocabulary that it borrows from the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And so for me, all of this just feels very gross mm-hmm. and not what I'm into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the, the kind of radicalism is inversion of values. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm for the people that the culture is against, and therefore... But I, I don't think you quite address the... Uh, do you Is your critique of it at all in a cultural appropriation dimension, or 
was it just about the deconstruction of why this was a bad metaphor and uh, a moralistic shouting of the T-shirt? Well, I was trying to answer the appropriation question separate from the example because I don't oh. think the example is particularly okay. culturally appropriative. More would be the conversation. Like, um, I actually own a T-shirt that is uh, that has a parody of the baseball team, is it? The, uh, oh, the, the Cleveland Indians. Right, Cleveland yeah. Indians. And um, so this is obviously sports teams and logos is, is a big topic of conversation as being... Shiny red face. Right. Smiling, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's Sambo. It's red Sambo is, is sort of how it's described. But um, And so I have a T-shirt that plays with that, and it says Caucasians, <laughs> and it has sort of a Richie Rich sort of, of uh, you know, Sambo-type character rather than red Sambo. And... Um, uh, and, you know, I think that that's a little bit playful, but I actually am sort of hesitant to wear it because I don't want to have conversations with strangers about uh-huh. this set of topics. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So, do you want to talk about the EBAP now? We didn't really... Yeah, no, sure. Yeah. We, um, uh, just almost two weekends ago, we just had our um, fourth annual East Bay Book and Conversation event, which uh, we shortened to EBAB. And uh, this is the first year that I wasn't one of the organizers of it, so it was really nice. I just got to table all day and talk to strangers about books that I love. And um, and the day logistically went without a hitch. It was definitely, I would say, 25% smaller than the oh, year before. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it had no re- reflection in how much people spent. As a matter of fact, I would say that smaller was better um, uh, from the perspective of LBC, mm-hmm. but um, because people actually got to talk to me and actually didn't feel like they were getting pushed by the crowd. Yeah, yeah. And so, as I, w- I did want to do a, a little history of EBAB, why did you, why did you with some others start EBAB when there's already a Bay Area Book Fair? Well, at the time, uh, the Bay Area Book Fair was based in San Francisco, uh, and it was called for many years the San Francisco Book Fair. Right. And then when they started to f- to fear that they were going to have to move, they d- did the slippery thing, and they started to call it the Bay Area Anarchist mm-hmm. Book Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that the, that the Bay Area Book Fair has um, all the great characteristics of a big tent type of event. Yeah. Um, everybody's there. Lots of groups are there that are not particularly anarchist. Yeah. Uh, lots of sort of like activist groups. And yeah, there's a couple activist groups, but I would say more like the more problematic uh, attendees look like um, vaguely political, like independent booksellers uh-huh. who who have some radical books in their in their catalog. I see. I see. I see. Um, I mean. If I were going to be blunt, I would say that I think that an improvement for a project like EBAB would be to remove tablers like PM Press. Uh I don't think PM Press is an anarchist publisher. I think that they're uh, an independent publisher that carries some anarchist books. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and and I've I've never heard of a political conversation happening at the PM Press table. Um, But also Microcosm is another example of a tabler who... (laughs) 
not particularly ra- uh, politically radical, mm-hmm. um, but you know they do some things that are unquestionably politically politically radical as product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh, sorry, I didn't really answer the question though, which was um, I, th- there were a couple motivations. One, and and the the greatest success I would say about EBAB is that EBAB feels like a local. Um, uh, book fair rather than like an epic big one. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you go to the Humboldt Book Fair or um, uh, last year there's a book fair in Orange County, those feel like local book fairs. They reflect the town that they come from. They you know they have characteristics that are that are like really neat to go mm-hmm. and visit because you're visiting anarchists in a different town who have a different experience of what anarchism looks like. So I wanted to replicate that experience mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I also there there were a long time where, well, and I would say even now, the political content of the workshops and the, the sort of politics of the Bay Area Book Fair has always been, quote-unquote, Big Ten anarchism, which yeah. is kind of a code word for um, some somewhere between liberal and activist. Yeah, it was actually pretty horrific for me when I, when I first moved to the Bay Area. Um, the Bay Area Book Fair was the first one I ever went to, and the very first presentation that I went to was someone who their whole thesis was to be an anarchist means to be a sort of social democrat oriented liberal right now mm-hmm. and just completely presenting the gradualist thesis and at that time I was still new to hanging around a lot of anarchists I thought this isn't really isn't what I expected at all <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I was trying to look around to gauge the crowd to, to see whether I was in the minority to think this was weird and then finally someone stood up and said so do you have anything to say that might be interesting to those of us who have been anarchists for a long time? <laughs> so I, thought, wow. I felt relieved. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Shocking, though. But I, th- there's a there's a particular kind of, we'll call it, uh, Bay Area um, mainstream anarchism mm-hmm. that, that has really come into focus since the anti-globalization movement. Mm-hmm. You know, prior to the anti-globe, anarchists, by and large... Mm-hmm. Uh, of the of the new era, um, were all punks, and and so as a result, sometimes that came off as you know high rhetoric, big words. Oftentimes it came off as as not high rhetoric and big words. Anti Globe more or less brought a huge influx of people who were college educated, and so um, and you know and the current organizer of the the current well known organizer of the. Bay Area Book Fair, also uh, published a magazine for a number of years that I think is really instructive to look at to, to understand where their political perspective is. And that magazine is called Clamor Magazine. I've never heard of it. Clamor Magazine, it's been gone maybe 10 years, but in the five-year span that it was around, it basically argued for a responsible, mm-hmm. um, anarchistic perspective that lives somewhere between... Um, Liberalism so and activism. Like speak the message, but also be a good person, and therefore, no one can say anything bad about you except your ideas, and then eventually your ideas get picked up because everyone can see how upstanding you are. The more generous way to say it, because <laughs> that's not generous, is to say that that um, that anarchism should should look like no division between means and ends. Because that's a lot of what the Big Tent is about, yeah. is that basically anarchists are the nicest people you'll meet. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if, if what you mean by anarchists is our group of people, that wouldn't necessarily yeah. be the case. We are not the nicest people no, you've met. Degenerates. 
Whereas the the sense you get from the big tent of the Bay Area Book Fair is that anarchists are the nicest people. Are welcoming ever and warm. Exactly. And so um, and so so in that way, it, we're not hostile to the to the Bay Area Book Fair. We just think that it's important to, to reflect our sort of norms, values, and culture, um, and that's what we're doing with EBAB. And this year is a really good indication. I mean, the the the, the informal theme of this year was basically anti-humanist. Yeah. <laughs> not, not the nicest people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, there was an entire workshop on serial killers, or mass shootings. Mass shooters, yeah. And, um, and another basically about how uh, Annika should grow up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the most recent Free Radical Radio episode uh, actually includes the audio for that, that presentation. Well, that wasn't technically the, the theme, but... This person always has to insert that message and grow up and yeah. get well, a job. What was it? Did you listen to it? No, no, no. But it was about developing and uh, what does it mean to develop an anarchist spirituality? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, just to, I guess to finish a recap of the book fair, I didn't go to many of the workshops. Uh, we, we recorded about half of them that we may share it sometime soon. Um uh, we actually need to organize with Free Radical Radio about which ones they have and which ones we have. Um, the ones that they just shared is actually one that, that, for some reason, our recorder was stopped during the recording of it. Sabotage. It's sabotage, exactly. <laughs> Podcast sabotage. <laughs> um, and there were no fights, which has not been, the, I think, the last two book fairs I went to, there mm. were fights. No fights this time. No, no fights. I, and as a matter of fact, there were a couple sort of... Uh, Known elements came in and uh, they escaped unscathed. So, <laughs> so I didn't get to see, see a tooth go flying like in uh, Seattle. Seattle, yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> um, cool. So, Black Seed Four is yeah. Let's talk about Black Seed Four. So, as many of you may know, both of Bellamy and I um, are involved in the, the Black Seed Project. Uh, this issue, um, issue number four... Actually, the theme kind of went along with the book fair. Yes, it did. Yeah. Well... Kind it, of. It didn't end up being that complete of a theme, but uh-huh. but the... Um, uh, yeah, anyways, it, we, we got it into print in time for the book fair. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Black Seed is a print-only... Uh, Green Anarchist publication that um, that sort of tries to challenge the question about how it's print only as as a way to sort of speak to how we receive information is as important sometimes as the information itself Um, but as oh and it's also a free publication we print 5,000 copies and this time we actually did a, a good job of distributing, and so that there's a there's a big pile in the Pacific Northwest, a big pile in the Midwest, and a big pile in 
the yes. South. Not and the East Coast. I'm not sure the, the East Coast cares about green anarchism. <laughs> That's trying to make me worry about my future. Um, oh, don't worry. Don't, they, they won't be there. Um, no, there's there's some Earth First people on the East Coast. As a matter of fact, I, I'd like to send a bundle to to the to the Journal, which I guess is still in Florida, mm-hmm. which I guess is the East Coast. <laughs> in the most technical geographic sense. Yeah. But um, uh, so for those of you who haven't seen Black Seed yet, some of the content includes an interview that I did with this local native named Dominique, uh, a reprint of a Gerald Visner article that's fantastic. Which is wonderful, yeah. yeah. Uh, John Clark does a 10-year recap on Katrina in the New Orleans area. Um, uh, Bellamy writes a piece uh, that sort of speaks to green Platonism. <laughs> Yeah, and just to give a brief background on that, it was actually an un- unfortunate situation from my perspective where, because of things I was saying on Free Radical Radio, Kevin Tucker approached me asking me to write a piece for Black and Green Review issue two. Issue two. Issue two. I, I had to think about that. And um, we had a back and forth, and at the time I was, I was traveling, I didn't have a lot of free time, and so I wrote what... I thought he was looking for, and it was not what he was looking for, and he seemed to think that I intentionally subverted the premise, which was not the case, but there was bad communication about it, and he basically said, I'm done with it, and I said, okay, well, I'm going to print it someplace else, and so I revised it a bit to frame it a little bit differently, and now it's in issue four. Where at least the first half is. The first half. Yeah. Perhaps the second half will be in Sometimes issue five. People don't like when you submit fourteen thousand words to, to their print only journal. Uh, the working theme in issue four of Black Seed is the end of the world, but it didn't end up being uh, that much content about that topic. But but for me personally, I, I recommended that theme after I saw the uh, the river in Colorado that um, that suffered this effluence of. EPA, um, but really mining tailings. And uh, for those who, who didn't see the pictures, I mean, for me, it really uh, broke my heart to see the, the this river that eventually led into the Colorado River. Uh, it was yellow, yeah, it was yeah like yeah, yellow yeah. for a full mile yeah. for for quite quite some time. And just the, all of the complications and the details and the name calling and the finger pointing and just the tragedy of of seeing uh, you know, the consequence of gold mining come full circle and um uh, so for me that it reminded me that we were sort of living in a time because around the same time this happened there were new tragic stories about the nuclear reactor uh in japan so it got me thinking about the fact that like all around the world it seems like hell is being unleashed and mm-hmm. and uh, i just wanted to speak to that and so the center of issue number four actually has a poster um basically uh sort of speaking to the question of whether the end of the world is upon us and that, and that apocalypse is happening in these sort of slow stagger steps and that, and that we're, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely when, when I was doing free article radio, that was something we paid attention to a lot. And if it's, you know, it's, it's strange, of course, living in this mass media world because whatever you look for, you can find. And I found myself every week looking for these stories. And when you, every week, go on the radio and talk about how bad things are and these things are happening. I mean, it, it becomes, I think, almost impossible not to feel 
like the the floor is going to drop out any day now. And and then of course at the beginning of of the issue, there's an editorial piece addressing this question of you know, wh what does that actually mean, and what would it mean for us to experience at the end of the world? Because we tend to think of it as a discrete event, or we tend to think of it as this sort of steepening slide down. And I think the editorial piece puts an interesting touch on on what it might more reasonably mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that, um, you know, a lot of green discourse feels apocalyptic mm -hmm. when it talks about these topics. And I think that the there, there's this um, essay called Desert that I, I continue to think is sort of underappreciated for speaking intelligently on this, on this particular topic. Uh, yeah. So, um... Oh, also, uh, other content in, in issue four. Uh, I wrote a piece on nihil uh, on animism and um, uh, inelegantly titled Nihilist Animism. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, there's a piece on activism and the green left, an introduction to the Anthropocene, and, oh, and a whole bunch of book reviews, or at least a few strong ones. Uh, there's a review of Black and Green One, Yep. There's a review of this uh, brand new social ecologist publication called. It's just called Post Scarcity Anarchism. Mm -hmm. For those of you, who, for those of you Which who don't know, right? And then, uh, and there's also a review of the Dixie Be Damned book that AK Press put out, and that all the kids are into. Yeah. So, anyways, Black Seed Number Four. You can get it at uh, LittleBlackCart.com, and it's still on the front page, so you can check it out. And uh, we sell it at cost when we when we mail order it, and if you see us in person, we give it away for free. So on um, on Anarchist News, there was a topic of the week called "What Next." I have always found that angels have the vanity to speak of themselves as the only wise. This they do with the confident insolence sprouting from systematic. And the idea being where is anarchism going? What what does it mean to do meaningful projects as an anarchist? And the way that the question was framed was a lot of people are thinking right now that international solidarity with Rojava is what is important and meaningful. And others think that doing anti-fascist actions in where they live is what's meaningful and important. And um, I, I, I have to say, I really have been loving the topic of the week and just seeing of course you have this subset of people who are more or less active on a news is what you're really seeing but um just seeing around the country and then um sometimes outside of the country as well just the amazing range of responses you get which <laughs> which ranged from saying absolutely anti-fascist action is important and the people who think it's not um, just don't understand what it means to live in a place where there is fascist violence as an everyday phenomenon. And you know, if you don't think this, then you obviously are just living 
some place that where you think fascists are the boogeyman, and and then s several people were talking about seaweeds type of project with these these permanent subsistence zones, um, and then some were doing this more, shall we say, humble anarchist orientation of, you know, it's about getting to know your neighbors, it's about mm -hmm. making real human relationships, and that itself is a radical act, and then of course you have the the ANU's futilitarian subdivision of there's nothing, we're fucked, nothing can be done, and <laughs> I always think it, it's funny to, um, you, a lot of the things that, that we say get tarred with this, I think, futilitarian brush, which, by the way, is a term I borrow from a friend as a joke on utilitarianism, so you're maximizing futility rather than utility. Mm -hmm. Um but I, I always think it's funny because we might get tarred with that brush, but when I see that kind of, like, oh, everything's fucked, there's nothing you can do mindset, I, I, really, it rankles me. I, I don't, I can't get behind it at all. Um, the idea that somehow there's nothing, you, you're, you're completely robbing yourself of any sort of agency. Um, it's sad to see people who feel isolated on, and they're talking on the internet and, and seem without projects, but... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess uh, this is sort of coupled. One of the comments that's made either there or in the Black Seed thread when, with the Black Seed announcement was a comment about the two of us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm just going to read it briefly, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. Um, here's the whole thing. I approached this issue of Black Seed with some feeling of what nihilistic anarchists might call wishful thinking. That is to say, with naivete. I thought the issue would be interesting. For the uninitiated, which I, by which I guess they mean not anarchists, or people not aren't involved in the milieu, the new issue of Black Seed is mostly gibberish. If someone is already an anarchist, perhaps they know about the issues raised here, but more likely they could care less whether primitive or nihilistic approaches are better, which I think is an oblique comment on my essay, Black Seed folks love to denounce other anarchists, in particular those, quote, seeking solutions, end quote, on grounds that conjecture should phase out all possibility of realization. Seeking solutions or goals is a European linear way of thinking and needs to be discarded in favor of endless discussion. Black Seed kind of reminds me of electoral politics in that it's a distraction, having little or nothing to do with our everyday lives. So this was specifically about Black Seed. However, the very similar criticisms have been cropping up of this show in general, that it is about intellectual masturbation, that it is about... Theory, not practice. Theory, not practice, that it's that we're being these sort of airy, above-it-all people. There was another one, um, not about Black Seat, specifically about the show, that, uh, that all we do is criticize anyone who does anything, and therefore we actually discourage action. They... Um, they they actually called us reactionary, which was interesting. And so I did want to get a little bit into what does it mean when you're denounced as intellectually masturbating? What does it mean to say all you do is criticize um, and talk about what... I want to take it in good faith and not just say these people are being dicks to us or something like that. And, and try to grapple with that criticism seriously. Okay. And Where would you begin? So one thing that I think is interesting that comes up in 
the comments is that it's often this has nothing to do with my everyday life of struggle as an anarchist and I can see where that's coming from that if you're you're citing philosophers or you're you know reading communiques about something that happened in France and commenting on that that there is a dimension in which it's fair to say you know, what's happening in France or what some philosopher 150 years ago is talking about it has as much to do with my life as you know what's happening on Pluto or something like that but I feel that I and you do make a consistent effort to bring it back down to you know, your phrase is often the human scale and talk about anarchism not as these not as this uh, grandiose messianic vision about transforming the entire world but instead about things that you can do in your personal life things that you can do with your personal relationships and so it's a, even though I, I did give it that credence at the beginning it is a little bit hard for me to understand um, how we're not tying it back to the human life and maybe that is a deficit of the show that I should be thinking about in future episodes but uh, if I mean if any <laughs> if anything it seems uh at odds with saying, like, oh, you're these these pessimistic people who don't feel like we can transform the world, and then at the same time get the criticism, why aren't you talking about everyday life, and instead you're talking about these ethereal things? And those are almost opposed criticisms. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the the first one you read is a sort of grab bag of what I would call bad faith arguments. Uh -huh. I don't believe that you can talk about every like, or I'm going to put it in as crystal clear of language as possible because I sometimes I'm I seem overly vague. To other people, not to myself. <laughs> um, the bottom line is, what does a world look like without the state mm -hmm. and without capitalism and without the institutions that I despise? And for me, it looks like a life filled with conversations with other people. Mm -hmm. So basically, my definition of what everyday life looks like is a discussion. And so for them to say that what we're arguing for doesn't look like everyday life, it looks like a discussion, is them entirely missing the point. What Do they really think that they're going to have running street battles in the streets of X town after the revolution? Is that is that what everyday life looks like? Right. That's ridiculous. And of course, they're not really... They're, because it's a, they're, they're just attacking us and they're not sort of defending a position, It's they have a lot of advantages in this, right. in this sort of thing. Um, which is why it's important to me to, to not be defensive about this. But, but I have been saying for a long, long time that I think that what anarchists should be doing with their energy looks like projects. Or to put it in a in different language, or to put it into Kuna's language, it should look like building power. Mm -hmm. And building power doesn't mean building a skyscraper in your backyard. It doesn't look like building a state that's prepared to take over the new state. Or some sort of military organization, yeah. Right. It looks like doing something that's within your capacity to do. And so, in my life, I devote my energy to doing projectual activity that is within my power to do. And I, I wish that my friends who see themselves as being the uh, uh, struggling all the time, struggling as their identity, and sees anarchism as struggle, I wish that they were taking on enemies that could be defeated because they were so, because these struggleismos were so powerful that that 
the condition of the of, of, of the area that we live in, you know, we're within their scale. But that's just absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. And and so so for me, yeah, I mean, I absolutely don't identify with the futilitarians. I don't say do nothing. I say do something that's within your capacity to do. Mm-hmm. And so in my case, it looks like media projects. It's within my capacity to do. And what I can do now is a lot greater than it was 10 years ago because I've slowly built the resources to be able to do more. And and so so to me, it's crystal clear from my perspective what it is that I'm doing, both because of the things I've said and because if you look at the practice of what it is that I've done, you know, there's basically a straight line. And um, and the way in which that gets misinterpreted as being utilitarian, because I say that those who who claim to be acting on a stage larger than they're capable of stepping on are are fools. That's that's on them. Yeah, yeah. There's a number of a number of things I have to say about this. One is that while I think it's I'm not in the camp that says if you criticize, you also have to be putting out a different position. I I do find it to be a, a sort of less than orientation. So, for instance, to the person, if they happen to be listening, who complained about Black Seed, for instance, okay, you think that am I talking about anarcho-primitivism as having this essentially civilized mindset is pointless? That's fine. I can understand why you think it's pointless. I personally think that the way that we conceptualize the world is really important and has a lot to do with our crisis of slavery and civilization. Actually, let me, let me interrupt and say, you have a personal stake in the argument that you made <laughs> in Black Seed. All of us came from somewhere. Uh-huh. Not everybody lands in Oakland as a fully formed warrior against against society. Right? Everyone goes through something. You went through anarcho-primitivism. This is your, you reconciling yourself with that yeah, I mean, it's definitely a personal project. That's yeah. a, it's important to mention. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so if, if this person doesn't find what I wrote interesting, okay. Like, I wish you had submitted something to Black Seed that you thought was interesting and that did have to do with your everyday life or the everyday lives of who you imagine the audience is. And so often when, when you just get this sort of attack of your project sucks so much, I want to respond like okay what do you think is a cool project let's talk about it maybe you want to submit something or maybe you want to talk about how you could get your own project off the ground and so I, to me that like the kind of the kind of criticism that you get slagged as making as being futilitarian i mean to me this is futilitarian just taking yes. someone's project yes. and saying it sucks how could anyone think it's cool yeah that is almost the definition of futility <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure um okay the other thing was I wonder what the the range of, of responses we've been getting about how either the brilliant or black seed doesn't have to do with everyday life. I wonder what those people think a, an anarchist media project should be doing. Do they want action reports? Do they want every week saying, this happened in Tennessee, and this happened in France, and this happened in New Zealand? And because I think there's an argument that there's a place for that, but it's already being done. It, the Crime Thing podcast does it. John Zerzan does it. Free Radical Radio does it. Free Radical it. Radio does it. And so I don't see why we need another media project that ultimately, I mean, to put it in ungenerous terms, is basically doing a cheerleading. And maybe there's a place for the cheerleading, and maybe people who do actions like that get hyped when they hear this kind of stuff. 
Sure, I'm I'm totally open to that, but I also wonder, what does that have to do with your everyday experience of struggle? If something happened in New Zealand, how is that any different from, um, you know, Happy if the ALF you. burns down a slaughterhouse in Tennessee and you live in Ontario, then I don't see what that has to do with your everyday experience of struggle unless you're planning on going into the United States and, and uh, uh, burning down factory farms. So it seems to have that same kind of removal from the everyday, which then leads me to say, is there a place for an anarchist media project where everyday anarchists just tell a story about what their day was like and you know, how they did this or that thing and you know, it's a, a anarcho this American life. I mean, maybe there is a, a place for a project like that, but that's not what this one is. If someone wants to do that, great. I think that's do it. I would probably listen to it. Yeah, I would definitely listen to it. <laughs> the um, I I think I want to take issue. I mean, what's what's challenging here is you know sort of a great way to attack people on the internet is just to throw a whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. at the wall and see what sticks. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we're being accused of that maybe is sticking, although I know I'm not exactly sure it's true, but it's something about quote unquote intellectual masturbation. Yeah. Now, in my world, intellectual masturbation looks something more like us talking about Bataille, doing an episode about Bataille and how important Bataille is yeah. to um, doing some readings of Bataille. Right. Yeah. I mean and and while I personally might find that interesting to listen to and definitely want to be in a conversation with the people talking about Bataille, that to me feels like a, like what I would call intellectual masturbation. Yeah. Yeah. I was Bataille's interpretation of Nietzsche accurate, or was he just using it for his own project? Right. And and so um, so us being called intellectual masturbators sort of perhaps is a, is not a criticism of us as this podcast, but it is actually a criticism of me. Because I published a book called uh, After Post-Anarchism that is entirely about Bataille. Uh-huh. And is basically trying to grapple with whether or not Bataille is um, important for the for an anarchist's you know, hagiography or something. And, and, um, uh, and so it's unfortunate that because I'm uh, a public figure within anarchist circles... That everything I do, like I am oftentimes surprised with how often something that I've said ten years ago in public comes back as as sort of an accusation of intellectual masturbation. Because I think that what we're trying to do here with the with the podcast is tell stories, and and basically, to put it bluntly, when people who accuse us or me of being intellectual masturbators, um, I am not providing content for them. And I'm sort of exhausted by the criticisms of me and and of the projects I do. There can, like, for anarchism to be a sort of full thing and to represent a full life and way of living, it's going to involve people talking about Bataille. It's going to involve people talking about whether Bataille is important. And and it's also going to include conversations and report backs about struggle and pictures of Molotov cocktails going off and, and all the rest. And so perhaps these people think that they're mirroring criticisms that they think that I'm making, which is that there should be no more Molotov cocktails in anarchist media, that's absurd. I would not say that. I am personally exhausted by an awful lot of what anarchists consider to be propaganda. 
Um, I don't think it's telling a particularly good story. I don't think it's telling the story of daily life. And so this project and, and a lot of the projects I'm working on now are a little bit more involved in you know what I call storytelling, but what is, I hope, uh, an attempt to, to look at things that happen from a, from a, a slower, perhaps more abstract perspective, but that is also real and personal. And, um, and so I, I, I just think that that's important to, to mention. Yeah, and I, I guess I would just do the little shout-out thing and say that if, if you are listening to this and you think we're missing the point and that the criticism that we're getting is valid but we're somehow taking it in the wrong way, please do email us at thebrilliant at thebrilliant.org. We respond, and by we I mean I, respond to every email, and we try to uh, take a certain portion of the emails and, and discuss them on the show. So you know, rather than just leaving an A News, your project sucks comment, uh, engage. <laughs> Well, I think it's. I guess. I guess I just revealed that we will engage with the news. Your, your project sucks, comments, So, it's not encouraging for the email, but yeah. And I and I actually think that that's that that is true. That what engagement looks like in the twenty first century is the fact that people are are sort of willing to follow work yeah. and and cite resources. So, continue to make your unfair anonymous yeah. anarchist news comments, please. Keep talking about me masturbating. Yeah. There's also been some comments on the, the, for those of you who don't know, our podcast website actually does have a comment feature uh, on it. Yeah. And we have rec- been receiving sort of quite a bit of back and forth, or at least a little bit of back and forth, um, about our style and about a little bit of the substance of what we're doing in the, in those comments. And those have been better than the news comments, for yeah. sure. Yeah, there's like a filter there, sort of. Yeah. If you're willing to make the effort to go to our website, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Well, what else do we want to do? Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna actually do another podcast here in a couple days, so this is uh, going to be a little shorter than usual. Yeah. Thank you for joining us in episode fourteen of the podcast, and I'm now going to try to do the technical feat of actually saving yeah. and correctly doing Hopefully this. Hopefully, you're hearing this. We didn't just waste another hour. <laughs>